In Smart Talks, we chat with people who are making innovative use of advanced technologies designed by IBM in an effort to make real-world change. There's really no way to introduce this episode without stating the obvious. The coronavirus and COVID-19 have caused massive disruptions in pretty much every aspect of our lives. We're faced with tough decisions, which become even more difficult when we find ourselves lacking critical information. And that's going to bring us into today's topic, but that's just one way that IBM is making its technology available in the fight against COVID-19. The company is working closely with scientists, doctors, leaders, and experts to fight COVID-19 in many ways, all while leveraging some really impressive technology. Whether it's using supercomputers to help researchers find a vaccine, and that's a little bit of a teaser for an upcoming episode, or aggregating enormous amounts of information so that the average American can get a localized snapshot of what's happening in their communities, IBM technology is playing a big part. So what are we talking about today? Well, the internet is a phenomenal way to share information, but that's a double-edged sword. Over the past several years, we've seen misinformation and even disinformation spread across online communities, clouding our understanding of matters from the trivial to the critical. If we're lucky, it's the trivial, like the fact that people kept photoshopping the date on the time circuit in the Back to the Future films to make it today's date when Marty McFly goes to the future. But we're increasingly seeing more bad information about important things from politics to climate change to, yeah, the spread of the coronavirus. And in that kind of environment, making the right decisions becomes increasingly more difficult to do just as it's becoming more urgent. That brings us to today's topic. I sat down with Cameron Clayton, the general manager of IBM Cloud Ecosystem and of the weather company, an IBM business. Well, we were both sitting down, but we also happened to be in our respective homes speaking over the internet in an effort to keep ourselves and others safe. And really, in many ways, that's what this boils down to. But I'm getting ahead of myself. One thing I do want to mention is that the unusual circumstances mean this episode sounds a bit different from other Tech Stuff episodes, because real life goes on while we podcast. Cameron's team at The Weather Company have done something extraordinary. If you've ever visited weather.com or used the Weather Channel app, you know you can get an incredibly localized report down to the zip code in the United States. And just so you know... There are 41,702 zip codes in the U.S. I counted them, which was tough because somewhere in the 14,000 range I lost count had to start all over again. Aggregating that much information and presenting it in a meaningful way is no small feat. But what Cameron's team did next was in some ways even more astounding. They took that general approach and they applied it to the spread of COVID-19. Here's my conversation with Cameron Clayton, with only an interruption here and there to clarify some things. Cameron, thank you so much for taking time to join us on the show today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Now, I think it's pretty safe to say, this is not an exaggeration, that everyone has been affected by the COVID-19 crisis to some extent. But I think it can be a little tricky for people to get a big picture 
grasp on the global impact of this crisis. Can you kind of speak a little bit as to your perspective on the world impact of COVID-19? Certainly. So as the Weather Channel, our mission is to map the atmosphere. So as a company and a collective of people, our whole job is to try and predict what's going to happen in the atmosphere tomorrow. Uh, it's almost this impossible science, math, uh, mother nature uh, problem that, that, we're, that we've been working on for a long time and made tremendous progress on. Said differently, though, and I think this is really where it, it, it comes to COVID-19, at the end of the day, we're making the invisible visible. And in so doing that, it's easier to make decisions when you take something that's intangible, you can't see, uh, tangible, and then therefore you can make a better decision as a result of that. Um, and so that's what we've tried to do with, with COVID-19. And we got so much inbound interest from our, our fans all around the world saying, hey, you, you make something we can't see easier to digest, easier to understand, and, and easier to make decisions on. Would you please do the same thing for COVID nineteen? Um, and so that's what that's what we've been doing is uh, is is trying to uh, make the invisible visible. Um, and like like you said, I think every single person on the planet is impacted by COVID nineteen, just like they're impacted by the weather, right? Uh, and so as a result of our our reach and our scale with literally hundreds of millions of users around the world. Uh, we're able to also communicate uh, with them in a way that they're familiar with. It's part of their daily habit already. Uh, and so, you know, we've been able to tr try and provide trusted uh, data to our fans around the world. You know, as you point out, Cameron, con contextualizing data is really critically important for people to be able to make use of it, right? To be able to take something that is conceptually this huge thing, but it's very hard for us to boil that down into actionable things that we can do as people. Uh, I think one thing that kind of helps, again, you know, as humans, we're not really good at dealing with big numbers just on our own. Uh, one thing that really helps is, is kind of anchoring things to personal experience as well. So before we jump into all the the background on IBM and the the weather company's work with uh, the the technologies to track COVID nineteen. I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about how this crisis has affected you personally so far? Oh yeah, sure. I think uh, so. I have four children. I'm married with with four kids uh, and a dog. And uh, about two and a half weeks ago, all our kids, you know. Uh, came home and have been on sort of Zoom and Google Classroom, <laughs> you know, uh, WebExes all, all day, every day, uh, along with, with me doing the same thing on uh, working here uh, from the house. And, you know, I think we're thankfully uh, safe and healthy and, and doing well, but uh, cabin fever is a real issue, <laughs> uh, especially with two boys. It's been a big change in the sense of we often ask, you know, how's your day going? Are you having a good day? Uh, and I think many of us are still asking that question. 
but we're not used to the answer being, actually, no, I'm not. I'm really mm-hmm. not okay. <laughs> uh, and and we're getting a few of those answers now. I had a couple of those answers this morning. Uh, and so how we rally together as a community, how we rally together as uh, as companies, how we rally together as uh, humans really, really matters. And I'm certainly super proud of the way our teams rallied together and, and IBM's rallied together. Um, but we're also super proud about our clients and partners and neighbors and uh, and others. Like uh, you know, we had a, a block street party where everybody would, was in their cars. They decorated their cars and drove by the five old people that live in the street and who were in the window to try and cheer them up. So this just amazing touches of humanity happening that's that's really cool to see. And that's a great way to segue into talking about what the weather company, what IBM are doing, and in a way to give people more tools so that they can make decisions that are critically important for themselves and for the people around them, whether it's relatives, coworkers, loved ones, just strangers on the street. We all have this responsibility. So let's talk kind of in general terms what exactly you guys are doing in an effort to give people these tools. So kind of from a very high level, as I understand it, uh, you're pulling data that's localized to specific regions, contextualizing that and presenting it in a way that's easily digestible so that people have an up-to-date understanding of what's going on in their communities. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, that's, that's right. We're, we're trying to make this invisible virus uh, contextual and localized. Uh, the important thing when you do that is it has to be from a trusted source. Mm-hmm. So the sources of the data have to be really high integrity and uh, integrity beats all other aspects of data, right? It's more important than timeliness. It's more important than, you know, how large the field is. The most important thing is it's a trusted data source. And so all the data that we're collecting uh, and displaying in our solution is from uh, local government, state government, or federal government sources. So we're not, we're not doing crowdsourcing. We're not uh, pulling in social media opinions or, or, or things like that, although those things have their place and are, are helpful in their own way. Uh, this is really about, about aggregating and collecting all the local sources so that you can see what's going on in your community. Right? Uh, and I think that's, that is really important. Uh, you know, I have an a, a uncle that was in Louisiana. He's uh, a great guy. But he's a free spirit. He does his own thing. He lives his own way. And he doesn't really listen that well to friends or family. He's going to do his own thing. Uh, and, and so, you know, as we started building, building this tool and I started seeing the data that was going on there, I was able to use it to show him that, you know what? Like, and this was, you know, last weekend and, and Monday, I was to show him, look, look, there's really some really serious outbreaks going on in Louisiana right now. This is really accelerating. Uh, you might not take this seriously, but your people in your community really need you to, to 
listen to the local authorities and stay put, right? Stay inside and and behave. Um, and so I think you know you take my my example and extrapolate that out across every American has a story somewhat similar to that, <laughs> I think. Uh, and so we're all looking and seeing what's happening to friends and family around the world uh, and across the United States and, uh, and you know, staying home, stopping the spread ultimately saves lives, right? It is that, that simple right now. Uh, and being able to show people what's happening in their community, we're doing it in sort of three ways. So we're showing them the data, how many people uh, have been tested and shown as positive in their county, how many deaths have been recorded. We're showing the trend line for that county day over day. So is it getting steeper? Is the curve getting steeper? Or is it plateauing? Or hopefully at some point here, we'll see it declining in, in places. But right now, we're, we're not. It's still on the upswing. Then we, we let them choose between their state view or their county view of that trend analysis. Then we're, we're making it tangible on a map, right? What we found with, with weather and we're doing now with the COVID virus is plotting it on a map. So you can actually see it in a geographical context. So your county versus the county next to you and, and across the entire United States, every county that, that's producing data, we're ingesting. There are some places that aren't producing data, particularly in some rural counties. But uh, for the most part, the major population centers are all producing this data. And you can see what's going on, right? And I think we've seen people make better decisions as a result of it. And that's the whole purpose, right? That's why we did this. One of the things you mentioned was about the trusted sources. I'm glad you went into that and explained where you're pulling information from, because obviously we're right now in an era where there's misinformation and even disinformation running rampant online. So it's good to be able to point to a tool and actually know where where's this tool pulling information from. And it's also really interesting to me that it's taking a very similar approach to what the weather company has done. I think everyone has had the experience of using either the app or the website and looking at, you know, weather forecasts for specific zip codes. And so kind of taking that same thinking and applying that to the COVID-19 outbreak is really interesting to me too. I'm wondering, um, with that in mind, uh, are the sources you're pulling from, you know, there are local, state, and federal government, are they in different formats? Because to me, that would present itself an enormous challenge because machines, humans are really good at pulling information from whatever format we encounter. Machines typically are not. So this is actually the heart of the technology challenge we've had. And, and we've basically used IBM's Watson AI tools to be able to ingest this data from literally thousands and thousands of data sources, all in different formats, right? Everything from a PDF that's actually an image, like a photograph, uh, essentially, for, to you know HTML files to or everything else in between. And every single county's website is built differently. There's no technology standard that's been applied. Uh, and so, you know, I think the, one, of the, one of the amazing things from a technology 
only perspective uh, in this is that, that, that Watson's AI was able to ingest and learn all of these different formats basically on its own and ingest all this uh, data from all these different technology types uh, and put it into a standardized format that we could then produce and, and, and show in our websites and our apps. Uh, and, and that whole training from when we started to when we had the first standardized file was 36 hours. So we're not talking about two weeks or, or anything. This is like, you know, a day and a half <laughs> to learn and train and collect the data and put it into a standardized format. Cameron mentioned training the system on data. And some of you might wonder what that actually means. It's a term used in machine learning, in which engineers feed information into computer models in an effort to produce particular results. And typically, you start out doing this by knowing what result you want ahead of time when you're first training the system. That way, you can see what comes out of the model, you compare it to what you expected to see, and if the two don't match up, you can go back and tweak the model. So, for example, let's say you're training an image recognition computer model to recognize pictures of fire hydrants. You might feed a ton of images of fire hydrants to the model. Then you might introduce a mixture of images that include fire hydrants and other stuff, seeing if the model can tell the difference, sorting the images properly. So you analyze those results, and if they're good, you keep going. You might use millions of points of data to train your model over time. And often, this is a painstakingly slow process, particularly when engineers need to step in and change something about the model that isn't quite working. Once you are able to get reliable results from the model, you can put it to more practical use, though it may require future tweaks when the model encounters something well outside the norm. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Cameron Clayton, the general manager of IBM Cloud Ecosystem and of the weather company and IBM Business. You're talking about things like natural language processing, being able to access all these different styles of data, whether it's an image file or it's something that can be searched with an algorithm. And then taking the meaning of that, not just the fact that the data is there, you have to, the, the machine has to understand what the meaning is in order to put it into its model and then present it. These are really tough engineering challenges in computer AI in general. And so to see that application being put so quickly in place. Uh, exactly, can you give us an idea of how long it took to, from the point of ideation to the point of implementation that you guys went through in order to produce this? So the timeline uh, from when we started uh, this to getting it, getting it live was probably about 10 days. This, we got inbound interest from our fans around the world. Uh, we then... Uh, mocked up how we wanted to present the data from a visual point of view. We then, in parallel, we're rapidly trying to source all these local data sources. We wanted it from the very beginning to be as local as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and we rapidly realized this was not something you could do manually. You had to do this uh, in an automated way at scale. Uh, and so that's when we brought in uh, Watson and, and, and AI to help. 36 hours later, we had data, we had, you know, uh, a format, but then we really spent a lot of time testing, right? Uh, 
to make sure that the data was correct, to make sure that, you know, when, when you know, Governor Cuomo speaks in New York at 11.30 every morning, within a few minutes, we're able to update the data based on the numbers he's sharing with the media, but aren't yet on the New York State website, for example. Uh, and so there's all these different f- factors, uh, both technology and format that we had to take into account, but also just testing uh, this. The second is we always, due to our scale and the number of users we have, we have to load test and make sure that technologically we can deliver uh, to the millions of people that use our properties and platforms. And so, yeah, we, we got this uh, live a, a few days ago and you know, beginning to end was probably seven days. That is a remarkable achievement. I mean, you're, you're talking about everything from coming up with the idea to the design saying, what do we actually do to make this possible to even even something that seems to someone like me simple, like how do you present that information to the consumer? So in a way that makes sense, like we we only see it at the end, right? We see it after you've made all those decisions and we look at it and we say, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. But you have to get there first on the design side. And I think a lot of people don't understand or appreciate how challenging that part of technology is too. Not just the making it work, but making it work in a way that is ultimately useful to the end consumer to so that, yeah, it doesn't just work. It works for you. Um, and we were, you know, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was that this design process, not only was it rapid, but obviously it was unusual in that you weren't all working in the same workspace at the same time because of the concerns, the health concerns. So what was that like? How did your team respond to working in a decentralized approach? So I got to say the team really has leaned in here hard, right? Like countless, almost, we probably had 60 people touch this project over Mm -hmm. the course of the week. Uh, I would say, 55 of the 60 worked multiple 24-hour days in that time period. Uh, And so sleep deprivation was a real issue as well, right? Uh, But but we have have great tools, you know, uh, whether it's video conferencing and collaboration tools where we can actually iterate and design uh, products remotely, but all on the same screen at the same time. Uh, So our designers were actually able to you know, one of them draws a line and the other one can uh, erase it as, as they're drawing it. Uh, and so you know, that was both fun and challenging at, at the same time. I would say the goal of the product was to make it clean and simple so it is digestible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, we can always add more data fields over time and, and add more information. But, but the real purpose of this was to help people understand what's happening in their community so that they would stay home, stop the spread, and ultimately save lives, right? Making that mm-hmm. invisible visible was, was the goal of this. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think we've, we've achieved that, uh, but it's only through hard work of uh, a small group of, of folks that, that, you know, really worked hard for, you know, seven days without sleep. <laughs> 
Wow. I mean, that's that's incredible. So so they're working hard putting this all together. Meanwhile, you've got the AI and tools working hard in the background to right. synthesize all that data. Can you talk a little bit more about the specific technologies running in the background? Uh, we've mentioned Watson, but is there anything right. else along with that? Yes, there's a whole, a whole variety of things that that live in the background that make this possible, right? Mm-hmm. And so and almost all of those things are things that we don't think about as consumers of weather.com or our mobile apps. Um, so, so one is just the cloud infrastructure itself, right? Uh, the fact that, you know, on Monday night when we launched, you know, we were, we were alive for like three hours. We had about a million users in three hours use the property. On Tuesday, we had three and a half million users start using the property. On Wednesday, it was up to like five and a half or six million users. You can't scale like that. And those are each individual unique visitors. Some of them visited multiple times and checked, mm-hmm. you know, tens of locations around the country for friends and family. Uh, and you can't have that kind of scale without having a really robust cloud infrastructure behind it. And so uh, IBM Cloud uh, was ha- has been and continues to be instrumental in sort of invisibly in the background, keeping the infrastructure uh, alive. And one of, the, one of the things about that, I'll tell you a quick story on it that was super impressive to me. And I see this these kinds of launches fairly often with our products. But as we launched on Monday night, uh, what I was not used to seeing was... Uh, security uh, automatically being implemented. And so what I mean by that is we were actually having a denial of service attack. So hackers were trying to hack into weather.com as we were launching the site. And because of the security uh, elements of the IBM cloud, it didn't stop our team. I was saying to our team, should we stop? Like, this this seems like a really big deal. And they were like, no, this is... Totally fine. We deal with this all the time. All the securities, you know, in place. Uh, and I don't say that to try and bring on any more <laughs> uh, uh, challenges. We don't definitely don't want that. But it was really impressive to me to see how the IBM Cloud has like got these capabilities built into it natively. Mm-hmm. That meant our team didn't have to worry. We didn't have to stop or delay our launch because we were having, uh, you know, a security incident. We were able to deploy seamlessly without interruption. So that's what that's one example of sort of something that you don't think about when you use a website or you lose use a mobile app, mm-hmm. but is how important the cloud infrastructure behind it is and how secure it is. That really matters. Cameron mentioned a denial of service attack or DNS. This is a common attack that the internet makes possible. There are multiple ways hackers carry out such attacks, but here's a quick example. When you get down to basic communications across the internet, it's all about machines making contact with one another. To initiate communication, one machine will send a quick message, a ping, to another one, which will then respond to the first computer. It's kind of like someone ringing your doorbell. Imagine that every time someone rang your doorbell, you absolutely had to go to your door to answer it. You have no other options. And I know... I find such a hypothetical world horrifying too, but that's kind of how the internet works. Now, imagine your doorbell rings, you go to the door, you open it, no one's there. Mm, Darn kids, 
So you close the door and you turn around to go back to doing whatever it was you were doing before. But then the doorbell rings again. So you turn around, you open the door and again, no one's there. Now you close the door again. And as soon as the door closes, the doorbell rings. So you have to answer the door again. Remember, you always have to answer the door. So you're stuck answering the door over and over. You can't get anything else done. That's kind of like a basic denial of service attack. Hackers will set up a computer or a network of computers, sometimes an entire botnet of computers that was created through the spread of malware, but that's a matter for another episode. And they'll send out a series of pings to a particular web server. And the goal is to overload that server so that it can't get anything else done, perhaps even causing the server to crash. Now, as I mentioned, there are a lot of variations on this basic idea, and companies have had to find innovative ways to counteract those tactics. Big companies like IBM spend countless hours developing techniques to detect and nullify DNS attacks in an effort to make their services stable and dependable. You're talking about the, the two big ones, security and scale. Right. Like, like if, you, if you need something that's actually going to reach everybody in the United States, then... It's not something that you can look at to gradually scale up the way we see, you know, your typical startup where they'll launch in a very localized area and then gradually build out from there. You had to go from zero to 100 in a single step once you, you know, metaphorically flip the switch. That's right. And without that sort of stability, you can't do that. So I'm glad that you brought that up too, because it's, again, one of those things that just sort of we've. I think we're in an era where we just expect things to just work and we, we lose perspective on what it takes to make that happen, you know, to keep that, uh, to keep things working. Yeah. And no, I think uh, it's, it's, it's been amazing to see how our, our friends and colleagues across IBM have helped support us and, and the amazing tools that they've provided to make this possible. It's, it's, it's super inspiring and f- feels great to be, Part of that, you know, in light of all the challenges we're all going through, to be part of a purpose-driven organization, you know, just personally feels really great. And, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about the, uh, you know, the fact that we have this very localized approach to tracking COVID-19, which I think already sets it apart from other There are great tools out there, right? Mm -hmm. World Health Organization or Johns Hopkins have COVID-19 tracking tools. But this is one where it's, you know, that's looking at grand scale. This looks at grand scale, but also you drill down to that local level where you can really have the the view of are things shifting? Is there a greater uh, emphasis on um, stay at home? Uh, I know you're not far from the city of Atlanta. I live in the city of Atlanta. We are in a stay at home order right now. So seeing that reflected in a tracker really does bring home how important obeying that kind of order is in order to, you know, protect people and and to mitigate the spreading of this virus. You mentioned earlier that maybe in the future there might be other types of data incorporated into this sort of tracking system. Do you anticipate perhaps working with uh, either leaders or medical personnel uh, in order to be able to use this kind of information in a way where perhaps on a logistics side, we could see uh, resources uh, moved perhaps proactively to where they are going to be needed? 
Yeah, we've actually seen that already with the amount of inbound interest from government officials, from uh, supply chain logistics companies, from hospitals. Uh, it, it's they're using this tool to to see what the trend curves are, that are occurring are in the various local communities, and then they're redeploying resources. Uh, I got an email on Wednesday from one hospital group that was moving ventilators uh, from Arkansas to Louisiana, for example, uh, because of the outbreak that they saw happening in Louisiana. And they said that the, the place they saw it was on our uh, website, right? Mm. And so, well, so it wasn't necessarily designed for that purpose. When you put local data out uh, in a transparent, easy to consume way, all walks of life, I think, make better decisions as a result of it. And so we're seeing decision makers at all levels and in all industries uh, use the tool. And I do think, you know, we're starting to now to think about what do we do and add to it, what's next. Uh, uh, and, you know, we have lots of ideas around that. Sure. I mean, I'm just speaking with you, I'm my brain starts to free associate with ways, like not necessarily ways that would be presented to people like me, right? Not necessarily it would be all packaged in with the tracker because obviously you want to keep that tool simple and easy to understand. You don't want to overly complicate it and then lose the message in the process. So, but there are lots of different potential applications I can I can sort of imagine where, you know, you, you say this isn't meant for public consumption, but maybe we start looking at predictive models to try and help people just even just getting the word out, even if it's not, let's get resources there. But we might say, well, based on this predictive model, we want to tell the people of St. Louis, Missouri, that uh, seriously, guys, stay at home for the next few days. It's it's that's going to be tough. But trust us, based upon everything we're seeing, it will help prevent a much bigger problem down the line. Like that's just one potential possibility I could imagine. Obviously, you've got to be very careful when you're talking about predictive models, but that's one of those things that uh, that sort of occurs to me. And probably, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir. If I'm talking to someone from the weather company, <laughs> predictive models are kind of your thing. <laughs> they, they are, but you do have to be careful with them, right? Mm -hmm. They uh, And so, you know, we're, we're looking at that. I think the next steps for us are to put uh, the, this product into translate it into Spanish. So for uh, the Hispanic community to get it uh, in, in Spanish, then we're looking to add other countries around the world uh, to the, to the maps and things. So that there's uh, similar, you know, I don't know if we can get quite to the level of granularity in, in other countries. We're doing it on a country by country basis. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't want to set false expectations, but, but we're trying the best we can uh, in various markets around the world to to localize as much as is possible with trusted sources, um, and so uh, that'll take us a little bit of time to get get that done. And then the other part of that is also translations, right? Um, and so uh, weather.com's in eighty five languages today around the world, and so uh, it's not a small effort to translate this kind of complex data. And make sure it's done correctly, contextually, and medically accurate uh, is also obviously obviously super important uh, around the world. And so uh, that th those are the next steps for us. Uh, we're excited about. 
But we also are seeing sentiment uh, analysis come up as something uh, from the mental health community saying, you know what, fear is spreading almost as rapidly, if not faster than the virus itself. uh, And how people feel is also really, really important. Uh, And having an outlet for them to share how they feel is important. And so we're looking at that too. I'm not sure that we play a role there, but we're looking at, at maybe it's as simple as the frowny face, the smiley face emoticon, but, but we're trying to figure that out. Well, and, and I think the important thing for us to remember is that getting this information, getting this localized information gives us, it empowers us to make decisions. It, it makes us more confident when we're making those choices of let's stay at home, even though it might be you know difficult for us if we're able to say, yeah, but I'm looking here at this chart and I don't want to be part of that red bar that is of the COVID-19 cases. I don't want to potentially put my family at risk or someone else that I might encounter. And uh, to me, that is an incredible, incredible uh, tool and an incredible story to tell, is that this is a way for us to kind of really think, how is this affecting the people around me? Not just these big numbers that I hear on the news where I can easily get lost because once you get past a certain number, I can't really even conceptualize it. This puts it in that context of, no, these are the people I know. And this is why it's important for me to keep that in mind, to stay safe and to protect not just myself, but those in my community. You know, I think this is... uh a tool to help people make better decisions, to put their local neighbors almost ahead of themselves as much as possible, and for us all to rally together, right? Uh, and, and when we say rally together, is rally together and stay separated. <laughs> uh, and, and that's not intuitive, but it's the most important thing we can do right now is stay home and stop the spread that's going to save lives. It is as well, simple as that. I, I thank you so much for being part of the show and for explaining the process and explaining the technologies that are required in order to make it happen. It's a interesting convergence of a lot of things I talk about on tech stuff, but in the context of making real world impact. And that's something that often gets left behind in tech conversations is that we talk about the how maybe even a little bit of the why, but it's it's rare when we talk about how it actually rolls out into the real world and starts to make real world change. So thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining me on the show. Absolutely, my pleasure. I want to thank Cameron for coming on the show and talking about the work the Weather Company and IBM are doing to give us more useful, reliable information about the outbreak of COVID-19. A quick glance at my county shows me that even as I record this bit, several days after speaking with Cameron, we're not over the peak yet. The curve has yet to flatten. And so it really is important that anyone who can stay home stays home. I know there are many of you listening who don't have that luxury. Many of you work in necessary roles that require you to be out and about, whether you're providing medical services, you're driving needed inventory to stores, or you're making sure the lights stay on. And so the rest of us have to stay home to keep those of you who don't have that option safe. To see this tech in action for yourself 
And to get a look at what's going on in your own community, download the Weather Channel app or go to weather.com coronavirus. You're going to see all the information there from a state and county level. It's really useful. And again, I think it's important to apply critical thinking when we encounter information about the coronavirus. There's a lot of data out there that just isn't reliable. Some of it might be well-intentioned, but incorrect. Some of it might be purposefully misleading. I've seen numerous messages that purport to be from experts, and more than a few that have no citation at all, that contain erroneous information about the outbreak. And when those supposed sources are contacted about these messages that they've supposedly been saying, they say they've had nothing to do with them. So knowing that the weather company's COVID-19 tracking tools are pulling only from official government sources in real time lets us know that the information is solid. It's also important to remember that these numbers are all on confirmed cases, and the number of actual cases out in the wild is larger, though to what extent is impossible to say. Bottom line, we can look at the localized information presented by weather.com and the Weather Channel app as being the minimum number of cases in our communities, and we should take that number seriously and do our best to get those numbers to come down. I'm certain we're going to see a lot more innovation in this space. One thing I draw inspiration from is how we humans can rise to meet incredible challenges. Sometimes it takes a problem of enormous magnitude to stir us to action, but then we discover we're incredibly resourceful. Defining the problem, understanding it, and then making a plan to surmount it is all part of the human condition. Whether it's landing people on the moon or finding ways to help people mitigate the spread of a virus. And we all can play a part. If you listened to our previous Smart Talks episode about Project OWL, you heard about The Call for Code. It's a five-year series of coding competitions in which groups pitch technological solutions to tackle big challenges. The winners not only get a cash prize, they also get support from IBM to implement their proposed solutions in the real world. The theme for the 2020 challenge is climate change, but since the publication of that episode, IBM has expanded the 2020 Call for Code to also include the COVID-19 crisis. Programmers and technologists are welcome to submit their proposed solutions to the COVID-19 crisis by April 27, 2020. Those interested in participating in the parallel track, which aims to tackle climate change, may submit their own proposed solutions by July 31, 2020. Learn more at developer.ibm.com slash call for code. In the next episode of Smart Talks on Tech Stuff, I'll speak with David Turek, Vice President for High Performance Computing and Cognitive Systems at OpenPower IBM Systems. He'll explain how the High Performance Computing Consortium is dedicating incredible computational resources in the fight against COVID-19 and tell us how supercomputers can help researchers in their efforts to develop a vaccine. That's all for now. I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 